0: Colossians chapter 3, the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading with the 17th verse. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17, Paul writes, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 19, Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. If you would turn back to the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes beginning in verse 22, Ephesians, the fifth chapter in the 22nd verse. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything pray together. Father, we ask that as we give attention to this, your holy word, that you would open our minds and our hearts, that you would make us receptive to that which is clearly taught and proclaimed in these portions of your holy word. Father, lead and, and guide us into truth. May this word be a seed planted in fertile soil that bears a a harvest of righteousness, to the glory and to the praise of your holy and eternal name, and for the temporal and eternal good and benefit of your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the uh, past 30 years or so, I've been grateful for those who have challenged me to examine more closely what Scripture teaches in relationship to particular issues. For example, back at the beginning of my ministry, the the charismatics challenged me, challenged me to examine carefully what Scripture teaches about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The theonomist of a later generation forged, forced me, they absolutely forced me to give careful attention to the question of how, of how New Testament believers are to view the Old Testament law. And now, in recent years, feminist and especially feminists who claim to be evangelicals, these so-called evangelical feminists have motivated me to examine carefully what Scripture teaches about the roles that God has assigned to men and women, and more specifically, to husbands and wives. And what I have found is that Scripture is almost completely out of step with our culture. Now, That shouldn't surprise us, but what does surprise us, or at least takes me somewhat by surprise, is to realize that Scripture is also out of step with the thinking and practices of many who would claim to be evangelical believers. I'm never really surprised to discover that Scripture is out of step with the culture in general, but it is always a little bit disturbing to realize that Scripture, at least to me, seems to be out of step with the thinking and practice of many who would claim to be evangelicals. I believe, and the Presbyterian Church in America believes, that Scripture teaches that men and women are equal before God, that they have equal value in His sight, and that they have been assigned by him particular roles to play. Our our understanding of what Scripture teaches about the relationship of men and women, and husbands and wives in particular, our understanding is is often, it often goes under the title of complementarianism. Complementarianism. We, We believe that God created men and women equal in his sight, and assign to them complementary roles. But many evangelicals, many, insist that Scripture teaches what we might call egalitarianism, egalitarianism, that men and women... Not only are men and women equal before God, but but furthermore, there is no gender-based differences that define the roles that God would have them to fill. Complementarianism teaches that men and women are equal before God, but God assigns them different roles to fill. Egalitarianism obviously insists upon the equality of men and women, but then takes the next step and argues that there are no gender-based differences in the roles that God would have men and women or husbands and wives to fill. The position to which we hold is complementarianism. We believe, let's be very clear on this, we believe that within both the church and the family, men and women have equal value before God, but differing roles to play. And that puts us out of step with both secular culture and with many evangelicals who embrace the egalitarian position concerning the roles that men and women are ordained by God to fill. So our, so, our understanding of Scripture, our understanding of Scripture puts us out of step with both secular culture and many within the evangelical culture, which, which means, by the way, that we're in good company. Because Paul... Was also out of step with the cultures of his day, both the secular culture as well as the culture of his religious heritage. For example, some first century Jewish teachers believed that women were inherently evil. Listen to one of their prayers. A prayer that would have been prayed every morning. I thank God that I wasn't born a Gentile or a slave or, God forbid, a woman. The first first century Jewish historian Josephus insisted that, that, that women were to be subordinate to men for their own good. And The Jewish theologian Philo thought that women had very little sense and considered it the highest of praise if he could offer a woman, uh, if if he could describe a woman as being the, the intellectual equal of a man. That was Jewish culture. But It wasn't simply Jewish culture that had less than a positive attitude about women. The Roman historian Plutarch feared that if a woman was left to fend for herself, she would end up pursuing sheer folly. And Roman law gave to the male complete authority over his wife and his children and his slaves. There were many... We have copies of many household codes that were written to advise the men on how to govern their wives and their children and their slaves. And it is because of the existence of these secular household codes that that some have suggested That this is precisely what Paul is writing in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6 and Colossians chapters 3 and 4, that Paul is writing another household code, another household code, like the household codes of Roman culture, another household code to instruct Christian men how to properly govern their wives and their children and their slaves further suggested that Paul wrote his household code for the purpose of assuring the culture of his day that they had nothing to fear from Christianity, that Christianity would fit right in with Roman culture. Now, that certainly sounds like Paul, doesn't it? I mean, here, it's just like Paul, just like Paul to be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depend upon human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than proclaiming boldly and, and fearlessly the Word of God, I mean, That's what we would expect of Paul, isn't it? I mean, we would expect Paul to cower before the culture of his day, doing whatever he could to make certain that that what he taught and that what he preached, that, that it wasn't too upsetting to those that he was seeking to win to Christ. And so he would produce one of these household codes in order to say to the Roman culture, see, we're just like you. That sounds just like Paul, doesn't it? Well, of course, it doesn't. That's not the Paul that's revealed to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. And that's not the Paul who wrote Ephesians chapters 5 and 6 and Colossians chapters 3 and 4. What Paul uh, writes in those passages... Ephesians 5 and 6 and Colossians 3 and 4 what Paul writes in those passages no more fits with the culture of his day than it fits with the thoughts and ideas that dominate the thinking and practices of our day Of course you realize that that one reason people would suggest that Paul uh, that what Paul writes w- was written to provide simply another household code for the first century is because they want to go on to argue that what Paul writes isn't intended to directly inform our situation here at the beginning of the twenty-first century. Paul's words, they would argue, were intended to instruct believers of of his day, but, but our understanding of what Paul writes It needs to be significantly modified. We need to rethink some of the things that Paul said if we're going to make proper application of these things, uh, if we're going to make proper application of what Paul has written to our own personal circumstance, our own personal circumstances as as postmodern men and women. But when you look at the Scripture... I think it quickly becomes apparent to anyone who will read the Scripture in in large sections. Not just picking out verses here and there, but read extensively so that you get the flow of what Paul is saying. Paul isn't writing simply to instruct first century Roman culture, he is writing to instruct Christians he's writing to instruct those who are, whom he describes as being holy and faithful he's writing to encourage those who are concerned about doing and saying only those things that will demonstrate their thankfulness to God their thankfulness to God who through his son Jesus Christ has has rescued them from the dominion of darkness and brought them into the kingdom of the son through whom they have been redeemed because of who because of whom their their, their sins have been forgiven that's TO WHOM PAUL IS WRITING, AND THOSE ARE NOT INDIVIDUALS LIMITED TO THE CULTURE OF THE FIRST CENTURY A.D. THOSE ARE WORDS THAT BY GOD'S grace, HOPEFULLY DESCRIBE YOU AND ME. What Paul is writing are spiritual words that are communicating spiritual truths to those to whom the Spirit of God has been given. Paul's words are not just another household code. They didn't fit the first century. People may want to argue that they don't fit the 21st century, but we need to understand that what Paul writes didn't fit the 1st century. But the problem isn't Paul's. The problem isn't with what Paul writes. The problem isn't isn't with Paul's message. The problem is with those who hear the message that Paul clearly proclaims the problem is with the hearts and minds of his hearers paul clearly teaches paul clearly teaches in radical difference in, in, in radical Uh, in a radical contrast to to the thinking and to to the ideas and to to the philosophies of his day, Paul clearly teaches that men and women are equal before God. That was unthinkable to Jewish culture, unthinkable to Roman culture. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28, in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 11 and 12, and in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 and 4, Paul firmly establishes this revolutionary idea that we are all one in Christ. That woman is not independent of man and that man is not independent of woman and that the husband is responsible to fulfill his marital duties to his wife and that the wife is responsible to fulfill her marital duties to her husband. Those are revolutionary ideas. Equal responsibility in the give and take of marriage. Paul also clearly teaches that this man and this woman who stand as equals before God, that God has given to this man and to this woman, to this husband and to this wife different roles to fill within the bonds of marriage. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and four, through 14, and, and in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9, Paul argues that this distinction of roles has been true since the day God created all things. What Paul writes are not some new ideas that he has just come up with. What Paul Paul writes reflects upon those things which have always been true. In other words, the roles ordained by God for husbands and wives to fill are not a consequence of the fall. They are what God intended from the very beginning when he first made all things good. The role that God gives to the husband to fill and the role that God gives to the wife to fill are not the consequence of the curse. They are what God intended from the moment He created all things good. Now we've talked about the husband's duty and responsibility of headship. The role that God has given to the woman to fill is that of submission. Submission to the headship of her husband. Paul writes, as we've read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And in Ephesians five twenty-two, we read, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Okay. Paul's words seem clear enough. But they cause many a great deal of problems. Why is that? Well, it's, it's because we live, in, we live in a sinful world and, and we're sinful people and, and those with whom we live, those to whom we are married, they're sinners, which means that it means that wives are being asked by God to submit to their husbands, just as the church submits to Christ. but the obvious problem is that, there are no husbands who are Christ-like in all that they do or say. And in fact, there are many husbands who are almost never Christ-like in their words, in actions. So we need to think carefully about what Paul is saying. First of all, we need to notice very quickly, right off the top, we need to notice that the wife is to submit to her husband as to the Lord. Now, that means the wife is not obligated to submit to her husband if what he is asking of her would force her to do something that she knows is displeasing to God. For the wife, as for all believers, there is always an overriding responsibility to obey God rather than man. Furthermore, I mean, just practical application here of these truths, no wife is to submit to abuse. I mean, when a husband abuses his wife, he forfeits his right to be recognized as the head of his house, and his wife is no longer required by God to submit to him. The wife is being asked to acknowledge the headship of her husband, a man who, by God's grace, is seeking to love her as Christ loves the church. Now, obviously... No husband will ever ever perfectly fill that role. No, No husband will ever perfectly love his wife, just as no wife will ever perfectly submit to the headship of her husband. But this is the ideal toward which we should be striving, a home in which husbands lay down their lives for their wives, and wives eagerly lay down their lives on behalf of their husbands, those husbands to whom God has given the position and responsibility of headship, as, as we've already discussed. Now There are some who object to Paul talking about wives submitting to their husbands because they say, look at, the, look at these passages in, in Ephesians and in Colossians. Paul also calls upon children to submit to their parents and slaves to submit to their masters. And therefore, some would argue that in calling upon women to submit to their husbands, Paul has reduced those women to the equivalent of a child or a slave. Well, if if by such an argument it is meant that like a child or slave, the role given to a woman is to submit, then yes, she is like a child or slave in that regards But here's what we need to understand. The command to submit does not denigrate the one called upon to fill such a role. Where did we ever come up with the idea that if you have to submit to someone else's headship that means that you, the one submitting, are inferior to the one in the position of headship who obviously is superior. Scripture doesn't justify those conclusions for one moment. In Romans 13 and in 1 Peter chapter 2, all Christians are called upon to submit to those whom God has placed in authority over them. And in 1 Corinthians 16 and in Hebrews chapter 13, church members are called upon to to submit to those whom God has given the responsibility of ruling his church. Most more significantly, perhaps, even more significantly, we are taught in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 5, that God the Son submits to God the Father. Clearly, when we stop and consider the way in which Scripture talks about submission and headship, Clearly, headship does not imply superiority and submission does not suggest inferiority. Citizens are not inferior to those who rule over them, and those, who, and those in authority are, are, are not superior over, over those whom they rule. Church officers are not superior to church members, and, and church members are not inferior to church officers, and God the Son is not inferior to God the Father, and God the Father is not superior to God the Son. And likewise, wives are not inferior to their husbands, and husbands are not superior to their wives. But God gives to each of us a role to fill. And for the husband, as we have talked about, it is the role of headship. Not so he can lord it over his wife. Not so he can pretend that his home is his castle and he is the king and everyone else is subject to his whims. The husband is given by God the duty and responsibility of headship so that he, like Christ, will lay down his life for his bride, even as Christ laid down his life for the sake of the church. And to the wife, as we are now considering, God gives to her the role of submission, which doesn't mean that somehow or other she has become for her husband a doormat. It means that she has the significant role to play to serve her beloved as a helpmate so that together they might fulfill God's holy purposes in this world. So what does it mean? What's it mean for a woman to understand? What does it mean for a woman to understand that the scripture clearly teaches that God instructs her to live in submission to her husband. Well, I would suggest to you that first of all it means that a godly wife will be at peace over the role that she has been assigned by God. That she will trust in the fact that she is doing what God has instructed her to do and as is always the case, obedience is blessed by God. Therefore, she will be a woman who is focused upon pleasing her Lord and therefore pleasing her husband. Just as the husband is called upon to to, to lay down his life for his wife as he fulfills his, his role as head of his family, so the wife is willingly to lay down her life for the sake of her husband she will intentionally intentionally seek to honor her lord by honoring her husband her attitudes and, and actions they'll be deliberate deliberate she, she won't simply react as situations arise but she will proactively prepare herself to do those things that are right and pleasing and honoring to both her Lord and her husband. She will be a woman who is intent on maintaining peace and harmony if at all possible, as much as that depends upon her. She will be a woman who takes to heart the teaching of Proverbs 19.13, where we learn that a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping. She will be a woman who embraces the teaching of Proverbs 15.1 where we are taught that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Her joy and desire will be to encourage her husband, in his service to the Lord so that together they might might accomplish great and and wonderful things to the glory and to the honor and to the praise of the God that they serve and for the temporal and eternal welfare of the the children in their home and, and for those outside of their home that they have the privilege and opportunity to serve. Now, if her husband's an unbeliever, her desire will be, obviously, the wife's desire will be to to win him to the Lord, by living before him, as Peter teaches in 1 Peter chapter 3, a life that is characterized by purity and reverence, a life that is beautiful genuine. She will be a wise woman who understands that talk is cheap and that actions speak louder than words. And she will understand that it is the living of a holy life that earns one the right to speak holy words. Husbands, If God has given you such a wife, then you understand the words of Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. And in Proverbs 19.14, we're told that houses and wealth are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Such wives are a blessing from God. And they exist. I know. I'm married to one. Again, let me say that a godly wife is to be guided by biblical wisdom. She is to submit to her husband as to the Lord. That is, she is to submit to her husband in a way that is fitting in the Lord. The godly wife will not do what is wrong in God's eyes, even if instructed by her husband to do so. She will obey God before she obeys any man, which obviously places upon her the need to exercise sober judgment and to keep a clear conscience. But she needs to know that the Scripture protects her. Just as Paul demonstrates equal concern for the husband and wife in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 16, where he gives instructions to those who find themselves married to an unbeliever, be it a godly husband married to an unbelieving wife or a godly wife married to to an unbelieving husband. So likewise, throughout Scripture, God protects the wife if a wife believes and i want you wives to hear this if you believe that you are being abused by your husband then you should turn to the church immediately for protection and for advice if a wife believes that her husband is failing to fulfill his god-given responsibilities towards her as his wife then the godly wife should, should seek out some with, someone with, with whom she can, she can speak in confidence so that she might receive godly advice and be assured of the prayers and support of others. Obviously, she should do so with great discretion, concerned not to humiliate or disgrace the one with whom she has become one flesh. Let me make one final observation. Because a godly woman submits to her husband's headship doesn't mean that she doesn't have a say in their marriage. And it doesn't mean that she isn't free to make independent decisions. And it doesn't mean that she blindly believes that her husband is always right or that he always does the right thing. And any husband, husbands, are you listening to me? Any husband who thinks that his wife is to simply QUIETLY SUBMIT TO WHATEVER HE DECIDES OR THAT HE IS TO EXERCISE TOTAL AND COMPLETE CONTROL OVER EVERY ASPECT OF HIS HOME WITHOUT EVER ASKING HIS WIFE'S ADVICE, WITHOUT EVER PRAYING WITH HER AS TOGETHER THEY SEEK GOD'S WISDOM, WITHOUT EVER RECOGNIZING THOSE AREAS IN WHICH HIS WIFE HAS GREATER TALENTS AND ABILITIES THAN HIMSELF, and therefore agreeing with her that there are areas in which she should be free to exercise her judgment and and make decisions without having to worry about her husband looking over her shoulder and and questioning everything she does. Any husband who places his wife in such a straitjacket is a fool. He's stupid. And I mean that biblically. He is sinfully stupid. He has failed, miserably failed, to recognize that this woman is for him a helpmate, to stand beside him, not behind him. He has failed to recognize the worth and the value and the giftedness of this one whom God has so graciously and mercifully brought into his life. At the same time, the wife is to acknowledge the fact that God instructs her to be in submission to her husband. And this she is to do with trust and confidence that God's ways are best. And God in His providence has given to the husband not a position of superiority but the responsibility of headship. And to the wife He gives not a position of inferiority, but the duty of submission. Let's pray. Father, teach us these truths. May they profoundly impact and shape us. May we be your people. May you be our God. Father, bless our homes. Bless Our wives and mothers, Father, give to them that ability to trust you and to live in the light of the revelation of your Holy Word. Father, use our families. Use them in ways that we cannot even ask or imagine to accomplish great and glorious things for the cause of your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.